welcome to the Hudson Mohawk magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Lennox Aputa. And I'm Bria Barthel, delighted to welcome Lennox to his first time co-hosting the program. In this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Mark Dunley brings us a report on the advocacy work around reducing plastics that will be occurring this week at the New York State Capitol. Then, Tony Iadesico of Albany Center Gallery talks with K.P. Holler about a Winter Arts Fest and lots more coming up at the gallery. After that, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson joins us for a weekly look at weather and climate. Later on, we hear a replay of RPI astronomy professor Heidi Newberg talking about her research. And finally, our own Cena Bazilla Hickey shares information on the new season of activities here at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. But first, here are some headlines. The Times Union reports that the number of car crashes involving Troy police officers has spiked in recent years. Since 2012, Troy police car collisions have resulted in 36 injuries to officers and civilians and one death. Half of the police crashes occur when the police are in an, an, are in an emergency mode. The report notes that the Troy Police Department has not included special driver training in the past but has scheduled an emergency vehicle operator course for this year. The Times Union also reports that four city, four Troy city police officers are facing discipline for an incident in December when they circled their patrol cars around two state troopers in the Lansingburg area, taunting them with spotlights and warning them to leave the city. On Monday, the Department of Environmental Conservation announced that they will be conducting hyperlocal air quality monitoring outside Giffen Elementary School in Albany's South End, as well as at locations in Troy, Schenectady, and other urban locations. The project will measure levels of pollutants and irritants such as fine particulate matter for two years. The Times Union projects that the planned expansion of Global Foundry Semiconductor business in Malta will put a significant strain on the ability of the state's electric grid to meet the increased demand for electricity. Thousands of New York pharmacists and other healthcare providers have been impacted by a massive cyber attack on, on a national healthcare company that began last Wednesday, disrupting the filing of many prescriptions. Times Union, yes, we do read other media too, reports that the State Public Employee Federation, or PEF, is facing a lawsuit charging that one of its officials sexually assaulted a state employee in 2019. The former director of organizing for the union has recently left his position. The Albany City Council has passed a resolution urging the state legislature to enact a good, the good cause eviction law to protect tenants from evictions and rent hikes. Albany passed the law in 2021, but the courts have ruled that the state needs to authorize such tenant protections. The state legislature has voted to reject new congressional maps from the Independent Redistricting Commission. Lawmakers will now need to approve their own map with petitioning presently set to begin next week for uh, candidates running for office. 
And finally, Restaurant Week is returning to Schenectady from Monday, February the 26th through Sunday, March 3rd, with 21 eateries offering one to, th- to three different lunch and dinner options. Information can be found on the website of the Downtown Schenectady Im- Improvement Corporation. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Listeners, su- listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad, broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteer. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, see the donate button at mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call us 518-272-2390. Now to our first story. On Tuesday, February 27th, advocates will be at the state capitol working to cut single-use plastic packaging in half in New York State by calling for passage of the Critical Packaging Reduction and Recycling Infrastructure Act and Bigger Better Bottle Bill. Mark Dunley reports. We're talking with Naya Estevez, who's a community organizer for Beyond Plastics. And Beyond Plastics and other solid waste advocates are holding um, advocacy day at the state capitol on on Tuesday, uh, February 27th. So so Naya, what are some of the, the key reasons why people are coming to gay coming together for uh, advocacy day? I think the main reason is that um, these bills will help cut single-use plastic packaging in half, and it'll increase reuse and give recycling a much-needed boost. The Packaging Reduction and Recycling Infrastructure Act reduces plastic at the source and makes packaging truly recyclable with with less toxins. And the Bigger Better Bottle Bill modernizes the current state law, which would recover billions of valuable recyclable containers from the waste stream. So I think people are lobbying because they understand that packaging standards make sense. Um, And we already have fuel efficiency standards for vehicles and energy efficiency standards for appliances. So why not packaging? Now, right now, the state legislature... um is in the process of adopting uh, the state budget, which kind of technically is due uh, around uh, April 1st. But understand that this year people are not trying to put the Packaging and Reduction Act into the state budget. But what about the the expanded, you know, bottle bill? What does the expanded bottle bill does? And um, is that something we might see in the state budget? Well, hopefully. Um, so it will... The it will reduce so the packaging bill will reduce all plastic packaging by fifty percent in twelve years, and it will reduce all necessary packaging by fifty percent. And the bottle bill it's important because it'll make polluters pay and not taxpayers. So taxpayers and local governments and municipalities are burdened with the costs of managing packaging waste. Um, And under the bill, most companies that sell goods in New York will have to pay a fee based on environmental standards for packaging. Um, And it will also reduce toxics in packaging. 
um, and it will make packaging safer for consumers and more recyclable. Now, I understand about 250 people have signed up, you know, for for this advocacy day. I understand this starts uh, over at Westminster Presbyterian Church, 85 uh, Chestnut Street. You know, what what is it? What does what the day look like? Yeah, so we have check-in from 10 a.m. till 10.30 at the church, and we'll have coffee and light snacks, and we'll get everyone prepared for the rally um, because, you know, you don't need um, lobbying ex experience to do this. Um, so we'll gather, and then meetings run from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m., and then there's a rally, as you said, at 3 p.m. on the Million Dollar Staircase we'll, with um, Bill uh, sponsors. I see a million dollar staircase is on the third floor of the Capitol, sort of on the um, the, the the west side of the building. Um, you know, so the package and reduction bill has been going around for for a couple of years. Um, not exactly, especially this version, embraced by the packaging industry or the fossil fuel industry. How is it? How is the bill looking this year? And you know, what is some of the the pushback that um, you know, is made against the bill? Well, the Packaging Reduction Act now has um, a majority of Assembly co-sponsoring, which is really exciting. So we have um, Assembly Keith Brown and Assembly um, Harry Bronson uh, becoming the 75th and 76th co-sponsors. Um, and yeah, there are massive grassroots advocacy against um like the American Chemistry Council and fossil fuel companies and also consumer brands are in Albany opposing this bill and they're talking to legislators and they're spending a lot of money, investing a lot of money into um, making claims that uh, these bills don't need to be passed. Um, but we need more people to add voices to pass these two major climate and environmental justice bills. Now, I understand that the uh, packaging bill has already moved out, at least of the Assembly Environmental Committee. Um, you know, what's the next step in the Assembly and where is it standing uh, in the Senate at this point? Um, well, currently it will go to codes. And it's really tricky because we don't really know um, what will happen with that, but that's the next step. Um, and because there is a majority co-sponsors, um, so the key to within in the advocacy day is if a member is a co-sponsor is asking them if they can push the bill um, to can push to get the bill to a vote by talking directly to Senator Majority Leader or the Assembly Speaker. Uh, and what was it? Where is it at in the Senate? Is it going to come out of the Senate Environmental Conservation Committee anytime in the near future? Um, hopefully, yes. Okay. We're hoping. Now, the, the bottom bill, I understand, you know, that was passed, what, initially, what, 42, 43 years ago? And so I understand part of it is to try to increase the um, nickel deposit on cans, soda, uh, beer to, to from five cents to 10 cents. But you're also trying to add on some of the, um, you know, beverages, bottles that were not, you know, presently included. What are some of the additional ones? I understand some of the small, you know, stores are saying, oh, we're, you know, we're too crowded. We can't afford to, you know, we don't have enough space to deal with it with more items in the bottom bill. How, how do you all respond to those type of arguments? 
Well, the original bill was, as you said, was adopted in 1982, and it's time for an upgrade. So um, having states with higher deposits from having increasing it from five cents to 10 cents will have higher um, redemption rates up to 90 percent, which New York's redemption rate is around 64 percent. And increasing deposits generates more revenue for the state. Um, and there are there's a report from uh, Reloop that estimates modernizing the bottle bill would generate um, $171 million to $350 million in addition um, revenue, an additional revenue for New York. So these funds would actually support the Environmental Protection Fund. So if people want to find out more about, um, you know, these two bills, do you have a, a, a website or some way for people to get that information? Yeah, you can um, visit beyond our website, beyondplastics.org, and right on our home screen, there's a link to sign up through Action Network for the Advocacy Day. And um, just if you just explore our website as well, you can learn through our fact sheets and our reports and studies more about plastic pollution and the different ways it affects all of us. Now, if you don't have time tomorrow to spend, I'm sorry, on um, Tuesday, February 27, uh, to spend the whole day lobbying, can they just come to um, the, the rally at 3 p.m. or the other parts of the day where they can drop in? Yes, um, you can pl please, everyone is more than welcome to come to the rally at 3 p.m. Um, over, like we said, over 250 advocates are um, to join us to lobby. So I think it's going to be a really big event and it's going to be really nice to get together with environmental activists and uh, try to pass these bills. Where does uh, Governor Hochul and, and her administration stand on both the Package and Reduction Act at this point and, and also expanding the bottle? Um, currently, I, I think um, that they are, I think they're questioning whether it's beneficial for businesses and for whether you know, we'll actually see an increase in revenue for the New York State. I think they're a little skeptical, but I think that's why days like this, like advocacy days and calling your legislators to just to educate them because they, you know, they're dealing with so many bills um, and hearing from their constituents that, you know, plastic reduction policies are important. I think that will help um, resolve any skepticism. We've been talking with uh, Naya Estevez, a community organizer for Beyond Plastics, I believe beyondplastics.org. And this has been um, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That Advocacy Day again is Tuesday, February 27th at the New York State Capitol. And for details, the website is beyondplastics.org. Next, KP Oles is down with Albany Center Gallery's Executive Director, Tony Iadisico, to discuss March 2024 events, exhibitions, and open calls for art, including the fourth annual Winter Arts Fest. This is KP Holler reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. With me today, I have Tony Iadisico, Executive Director of Albany Center Gallery. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Tony. Hey, KP. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
So for our listeners who may not be familiar with Albany Center Gallery, can you give us a little bit more information about what the gallery does and where you're located? Sure. Uh, Albany Center Gallery uh, is a nonprofit arts organization. We've been around for 46 years now. Uh, so we've been uh, showcasing, promoting, uplifting, and supporting artists in the region. Uh, we're located in downtown Albany in the Arcade Building next to the Stacks location uh, on, on Broadway. It looks like you have a couple of great events coming up at the beginning of March. On March 9th, you will be hosting your fourth annual Winter Arts Fest, as well as a collage workshop. Can you tell me a little bit about those events? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so on the 9th, uh, we have our Winter Arts Festival uh, taking place at the Albany Distilling Company. Uh, it's a way to uh, really get out and embrace the cold weather in upstate New York, even though we're we're uh, having some nice uh, stretch of uh, warmer days. Uh, but it really is just a way to get out, celebrate the arts, uh, and just enjoy uh, connecting with the community. Also on the 9th, uh, if you're not into that, uh, and you do know some young folks, uh, we have a workshop that takes place at the Albany Center Gallery uh, for ages 13 to 18 uh, to create collage workshops with Beth Brown. Great. And is that um, collage workshop, is that part of a larger series or is that just a one-off? Yeah, so the collage workshop series uh, is part of our art workspace uh, that takes place at Albany Center Gallery. Uh, we've been doing this for uh, many years now, uh, but now the second Saturday of each month, we actually rotate different uh, themes of artworks and different artist mentors to come in and teach students, uh, also while just creating. So uh, it's we've been doing it, um, but we're also now doing it more consistently uh, and also trying to find ways to expand that as well. Great. And as for Winter Arts Fest, um, I personally need all the motivation that I can to get out in this cold upstate winter weather, though you're right, it's been nicer than usual. But this is your fourth annual. Um, tell me a little bit, and our, our listeners who haven't been before, um, tell us a little bit about what we could expect if we were to join for the fourth annual Winter Arts Fest. Sure. Uh, so ideally, uh, starting the day off, uh, going to the Albany Distilling Company, uh, entering the space, uh, you'll hear uh, music by DJ Intel Hayesfield. Uh, that will be uh, spinning some music throughout the afternoon. Uh, that will actually carry out into the courtyard as well. So if you've never been to the courtyard or the Albany Distilling Company, they have an indoor-outdoor space. Uh, so it's rain, snow, sleet, uh, sunshine, uh, and everything in between. We're, we're uh, all, all seasons. We're going to be there no matter what the weather. Obviously, if we have a huge storm, but uh, you're going to see creativity happening by local artists. So people are going to be live painting and live drawing. Um, we're going to be doing art installations. Uh, we have someone that, uh, that will be fire spinning. Uh, Acadia will be there. Um, and yeah, just a lot of interactive art experiences and then also opportunities to support artists uh, and vendors that will be sh uh, showing and selling uh, stickers, artwork, uh, repurposed clothing pieces and things like that. So there's really uh, probably something for everyone and, and it's definitely going to be an exciting creative time. And because the event is at the Albany Distilling Company, is this an adults-only event? Uh, so we actually uh, created it to where it can be anyone. Um, so there's uh, 10 and under. There'll be activities as well. Uh, there is, it's a kid and family-friendly event. Uh, so it is really meant for everyone. That's excellent. 
And going back to the collage workshop, you said that is for young people ages 13 to 18. Correct. Is, yep. Is your whole um, series, uh, is that the age range or does it vary based on the type of work that you're doing or the mentor who is present that month? Sure. Uh, the age range is usually 13 to 18, uh, but we have had individuals that were 10 years old and the family signed them up that were really excited for the art. Uh, so the idea is that if anybody is interested and they don't fit within the age range, just reach out to us. But we definitely welcome uh, anyone that we can that is interested in wanting to be involved. That's excellent. It seems like a lot of what you are doing at Albany Center Gallery has to do with partnership um, and collaboration. So whether that be with an individual artist, like the artist mentor for your collage workshop, Beth Brown, or partnering with local businesses like Albany Distilling Company. Can you talk a little bit about, um, since you've been doing this for many years, how do these partnerships benefit um, not just the arts organizations, but also our local downtown businesses. Um, you know, how how does that collaboration really support what you're trying to do at the gallery and just the overall kind of livability of our our capital region cities? Yeah, uh, for us in the gallery, uh, collaboration is is really key for everything we do uh, to try to create a win 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 scenario. Uh, so when we partner, we try to find like minded organizations and businesses that believe in the mission of what we're trying to do, um, but also trying to find ways to pay and compensate artists. Uh, so really, we try to align with businesses and organizations that uh, also want to do that. Uh, so a good example, uh, we partner with the Red Bookshelf and the Honest Weight Food Co-op for our youth art programs. Uh, those are two individual organizations that separately do their own thing, but together, uh, working with the gallery, we actually are able to create that uh, synergy between providing free food and, and access to healthy options, and then also literacy programs with the Red Bookshelf uh, that then also provide books for the workshops that we're also gonna be teaching that that way it's kind of a full circle. So uh, that's kind of just one example. Um, for the Albany Distilling Company, again, similar scenario, just bringing people out and bringing people together uh, as part of what they do. Uh, that really aligns with what we're trying to do as well, as far as bringing artists and art making to the community. Uh, and people can actually see the art come to life, which I think is kind of the behind the scenes that we're bringing to the space so people can actually see it kind of take place live. Um, and all of those things really help, I think, make the city and the region a stronger place, um, but also make sure that we create accessibility for people uh, to be part of it. So uh, we always try to introduce new people to different places and also artists and mentors uh, to the community to really just kind of create a larger space for everyone to to create, but also uh, help us bring more art everywhere. I love that slogan, more art everywhere. Um, and you certainly seems like you are delivering on that. I do want to touch on a couple of your exhibitions. So right now on view in the gallery is an exhibition called Bloom. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, um, that exhibition that is up through March 15th? Sure. Uh, so Bloom, uh, we we curate shows out uh, at the gallery. So we usually do between seven to eight major exhibits a year at the space. Uh, this one is featuring over 20 artists uh, that really are just kind of interpret are interpreting nature in the natural world uh, in their ways of creating. So some of their pieces are uh, 
you know, they look like nature and some of them are also very abstract to where it's a, the interpretation of, of how artists would normally see it or how they would interpret uh, the nature around them. Uh, so shows like that, um, by having it be open at a longer time period, uh, also allows people to come in. Uh, it is Tuesday through Saturday, uh, so what we try to make sure that it's uh, the hours are there for people to be able to join us. Uh, and then we have open calls for art as well. So artists are able to submit to the gallery on an ongoing basis, uh, which again allows us to see as much uh, artwork and frequently as possible uh, to see what shows can be upcoming. So we're excited for this 2024 year. Yes, and I also see you have an open call for art right now um, for yes. Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what inspired this exhibition? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we're working with a local organization uh, and kind of a grassroots organization, AAPI Heritage Month 518. Uh, they're newly created, um, but what they're looking to do is really highlight the community, um, kind of showcase and promote uh, all the amazing talents and abilities um, of Asian American and Pacific Islanders. Uh, so we're, we did an open call. Uh, so we're actually actively receiving artwork uh, for that call for art. Uh, and then in May, we're actually, or end of April and then into May and then end of June, uh, we're gonna be showcasing the work that uh, was submitted. So we'll have performances, music, poetry, uh, culinary arts, visual arts, installation art, uh, all taking place. Uh, and we're super excited for that uh, call as well. That's really great. Thank you so much for joining me to share more about Albany Center Gallery and all of the exciting happenings um, coming up in March. We have just a few more seconds. If our listeners want more information or to attend any of these events, where can they get more information? Anybody can visit albanycentergallery.org uh, if they're interested or on our social media, Albany Center Gallery on most platforms. Um, and yeah, we look forward to talking and to seeing everyone. This has been KP Holler for Hudson Mohawk Magazine speaking with Tony Ayadesico from Albany Center Gallery. Tony, thank you so much. Thank you, KP, for having me. I appreciate it and look forward to connecting with you soon. We just heard from Tony Ayadesico about the great programs coming up at the Albany Center Gallery. So glad he mentioned the Red Bookshelf, another terrific Albany nonprofit. And a little Later, we'll hear about the new season of activities at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Things are beginning to hop. For those just tuning in, I'm Lennox Apudo. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. WOOCLP 105.3 Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM Schenectady, W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by joining our team or by sharing our content with friends, neighbors, and others. Find today's stories at and more media at mediasanctuary.org. And now we get our weekly weather update with retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson. Welcome back, Hugh. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> well, today certainly did not feel like February 26th, more like April 26th. Where is the snow and cold? 
what's what has been going on this winter? Is it over? I don't want to say it's over yet. That Lennox, that would be a little bit premature, but but it has definitely been a weird winter. Um, the polar vortex never collapsed. We had a strong El Nino. We had a blitz uh, jet stream, a bifurcated jet stream structure, very unusual. A lot of the Arctic air was kept up in Canada. You know, plenty of snow in, in Alaska, places like that. But uh, a lot of Canada was it was even above normal. But we were definitely above normal. In fact, it's it's uh, we were knocking on. We were on the verge of setting our mildest meteorological winter on record. Now, meteorological winter is from December 31st to February 29th. And we're one tenth of a degree ahead of 2015-16, which was also a strong El Nino, and it looks like we're going to easily hold that. Although the last day of the month will turn slightly colder than normal, we'll, we'll probably discuss that a little bit more. But the next couple of days will be very mild. Hit 59, by the way, today, which is our normal high for April 15th, not 26, but it's mid-April weather basically. So we had a very very nice day. And uh, February, by the way is also looking to be perhaps the second warmest on record. It will not reach the 35.2 average set way back in 1828, but we could easily get uh, second or third place. 1834, the February of 17, and 1981 are all very close to each other, right around 33.2 degrees for second, third, and fourth place, respectively. And we're right in that mix as we speak now. So we, we could actually... Uh, we could get up very close to that. And we'll also have our, our driest February on record right now, which is very unusual. Uh, only 0 0.17, 0.17 inches of rain the entire month. But, and this is a big but, it's a good bet that we won't, we won't get that anywhere close to that because we're going to get a pretty good, it uh, looks like a soaking rain on Thursday with a strong cold front, which may knock us out of contention. Where all we need is another six, uh, about seven-tenths of an inch to knock us out of the top because they're all below an inch and we might end up with an inch for the month. We'll still be well below normal. But anyway, still, as you know, the high slight and, and snow, forget it. We're 22.2 inches. We're not, not in the top. I don't think we're in the top least 10 snowiest winters there, but we're close. And there's really no chance for snow until the 28th. And we might actually pick up a little snow on that day. So we could actually see a couple of those things change before the end of the month. Boy, when you said that the hottest... February on record was back in 18-something. My first thought was climate warming deniers are going to pick up on that. And yet, yeah. scientists know about global warming back in the 60s and 70s. I find it pretty impressive at how accurate their predictions about unpredictable weather and crazy storms were. Yeah, well, actually, okay, back there were some scientists that were actually even further back than that correctly forecasting global warming, but there were a batch of scientists in the 60s, and I have a, I actually have a, a magazine from 63, I think it's a light or something, and it, it, I remember I picked it up in Saratoga back in the 90s, and it talked about the Great Ice Age coming. There were people that actually, because here's the thing, once again, back in the 60s and 70s, we had more aerosols in the atmosphere before the EPA came to fruition. We had a lot more junk in the atmosphere, which was at that point, trumping CO2 warming, it was kind of going back and forth. But once we cleaned up the air, but we kept putting the CO2 in it, that's when things started to change for good. And that was closer to 1980 when we really took off. Now, there were two years that we had distinct cooling, especially 
two and three after the release of Pinatou, which puts a lot of aerosols into the atmosphere, into the stratosphere, and a little less with Mount St. Helens. That was not as nearly as, as much, but it was still enough to cause a little cooling in 1981. But other than those two, a couple of years and a little cooling around 2000, we've been pretty much warming up since then. Do you realize our last month globally that was below normal was back in 1985? I kid you not. If you take the whole globe, the whole Earth as integrated average temperature, it's back. You have to go, you have to go back to 1985. Pre-industrial temperatures, I should I should add, you know, before the industrial, before the industry started to raise temperatures. And you you meant you mentioned that the Earth actually cooled a few years with some possible volcanic eruptions, uh, and there was a lot of smoke from the Canadian wildfires. Why didn't that smoke also cool the globe? Very good question. Um, and basically, the answer is. Yeah, it did cause a lot of horrible air quality. It did darken the sky and it locally cooled maybe a day or two, but it did not produce anywhere near the amount of aerosols that a major volcano eruption does. Okay, it was spread out too over a longer time. It did cause terrible air quality, but a, a volcano, I, I try to look at the numbers I didn't actually find, but I'm betting it's at least uh, 10 times more than what the Canadian fires did. So, yeah, they didn't put a dent in the temperature so much, uh, but they, except locally, but they sure did you know, cause a lot of havoc. And by the way, talking about the Canadian fires, not to scare you, some of them are still going on in Canada. They're not, they call them phantom fires, or they're actually still burning like underground or near the ground level. And the weather pattern has not changed that much since last summer, folks, up there in Canada. We still have unusual heights. The, the, the low that's usually around Hudson's Bay has generally been pushed north, occasionally dips down. We're going to get a big dip in that this, later this week. But for the most part, it's been, it's been much further north, and that's allowed it to be quite dry over Canada. Now it's winter, so it's dormant, but we'll have to see if this pattern continues. We may have another uh, spell of the Canadian fires. And by the way, up to 5% of the forest fires, uh, uh, I mean, for, forest was burned from the forest fires last year by far the biggest forest fires for Canada in record history, in history. So you gave us a little preview for the weather this week. Do you have anything else to say? Oh, yeah. Well, I've got a lot to say. We just don't have much time. But uh, we're going to see another um, very warm day tomorrow, a little more sunshine, a little less sunshine, to say, and a little more wind, still pushing 60 tomorrow. And we might bust into the 60s on Wednesday. If we can get sun... We get the southwest wind ahead of a strong cold front. We have a shot of getting well into the 60s and, and possibly going for the record. I forget. I forgot to check what it was, but we will be in, in line for a record high if that happens. But we'll say at least 60. But then, then Wednesday night into Thursday, that strong cold front we talked about comes through, probably bringing a band of heavy showers, maybe a thunderstorm. We had one in, in January. Now we might have one in, in February. And then sharply colder. That's right. You heard that right enough to possibly cause a flash freeze on Friday morning. And we might even see a little snow. I'm not looking for much snow, but we could get an inch or so, and we could see temperatures tumbling into the 20s, um, and it could cause very slippery roads. The potential is there. So I think Friday is going to be like, oh, my God, it really still is winter. So February looks to go out like a lion, and March will also come in like a lion. But then it's going to warm up again after that. So it's just a quick shot of cold air and then back to warming again. 
we had talked about the um, the predictions back in the 60s and 70s. And one of the things they said was that it would be irregular and unpredictable and lots of, of variability. Yeah. It seems like this is a perfect example of it. Absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, it's, it, we're, good, we're finding out new things about climate change and some weird patterns. And it, it's just been a very, I, 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 where, where I was in Hilton Head, it wasn't that warm relative to climate compared to up here. But that's actually what you expect with an El Nino. It's not so warm in the southeast. In fact, it's usually a little wetter and cooler than normal. And, that's exa- and people in Florida were complaining, too, that, you know, it was cool compared to what they're used to. But meanwhile, up here, we were quite mild for what we are normally used to and a very, very strange winter indeed. (laughs) Thanks for that, Hugh. Thanks for joining us again. We look forward to talking to you next week. Absolutely. I'll be there. Thanks a lot, Hugh. Bye-bye. Great evening, everyone. (laughs) Oh, it's so nice to have Hugh back and to welcome my new co-host, Lennox, who is studying electrical engineering at the University at Albany and working on an astrophysics project we went into our archives for the story on astrophysics. So this is Sophia Cahillin, and I am here with Professor Heidi Newberg from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where she researches and teaches astrophysics. Welcome. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So I wanted to just start off with basic questions about the sciences and kind of how you originally got interested in STEM, or physics in particular. Okay. I... Uh... I think what I liked as a kid was uh, was figuring things out. So I liked all uh, these brain teasers, and there are Scientific American, you know, mind builders, and and I would try to do all of the puzzles that I possibly could do. And I think that's really what excites me about about the sciences, the puzzle aspect of mm-hmm. it. Um, and I never really picked astronomy or physics uh, ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> it just sort of is what happened. When I when I started, I, you know, in the senior year, all of a sudden someone asks you what you want to do next, and, and that's when you first start thinking about it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do something science and math. And my, my father, who uh, went to school in the 60s and got a, an undergraduate degree in psychology, said, well, if you're going to do math or physics, you should do engineering so that you can get a job. <laughs> and so I did that. I, I went to RPI as a freshman in mechanical engineering. And when I was there for a year, I thought, you know, I really don't want to take the sophomore level engineering class. I didn't want to take lumped parameters systems. I didn't want to take fluid dynamics. Mm-hmm. And I re- realized that what I wanted to know was why everything worked the way it did and not how do I use the way things work. And I think that's kind of the difference between scientists and engineers. You know, we do the same, we use the same concepts and the same physics, but, uh, but as a scientist, you're always asking, well, why does metal stretch Mm -hmm. uh, when you pull on it? And when you're an engineer, you want to know how does it stretch so I can build my bridge. (laughs) And how can I use this? And so I, that's when I switched into physics. Okay. Cool. Um, so you mentioned you went to RPI. Yes. And so that was undergrad? Yes. Did you stay there for graduate school? Or? No, I didn't. 
I I did my graduate work at uh, University of California, Berkeley. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I mean, there's not too many times, I thought, you know, there's not me, too many times in your life when you can just pick up and go across the country and try something new. Mm. <laughs> and I had done my undergraduate work very close to where I grew up. So this was a chance to just go out and see the world. Yeah. Going to the West Coast. Yeah. Okay. Um, so can you tell the world of, <laughs> of your specific subject area right now? So astrophysics, what are you working on in your research? Well, I actually am working on too many things at the same time, uh, is the real answer to that question. <laughs> uh, what I, my main area of research is the Milky Way galaxy, trying to understand the structure of the Milky Way galaxy and how it formed uh, how it be- how it became the way it is today, how it works. I, when I started learning about galaxies in school, it was always kind of a static picture. You would draw a picture of an exponential disk and then some kind of halo it was in, and it just seemed like everything was just static. And what what we're finding is that that when that small galaxies are falling into the Milky Way. So they're things that are coming in all the the time. Yeah. Smaller galaxies. Small galaxies. (laughs) (laughs) And they're perturbing the the disk stars. And so they actually could be making spiral structures or affecting the whole organic shape of the galaxies. So I now think of the Milky Way as this dynamic uh, place where there's all these things falling in and dust being blown out and spiral arms forming and changing. And it's a a whole dynamic system. And so I'm trying to understand how that whole system works. And and one of the big things that we think about is that like 80% of all the mass in our galaxy is dark matter, which is a substance that we have no idea what it is. And so one of the things that we try to use is the dynamics of that Milky Way galaxy to try to understand something about uh, the dark matter that we cannot see and you know, try to figure out exactly where it is in the galaxy. Okay. Um, so that's that's the main thing. <laughs> you know, just giant structures in space. It's pretty intense. Um, so, uh, okay. Moving away more from the science bit and into um being a woman in stem and i was wondering if you had ever experienced uh from peers in the fields or students uh unconscious or implicit biases well i mean we all we all experience those right um and uh and a lot of times it's it's difficult to know that that's actually what's going on. You never know when you weren't chosen to do something or you weren't asked to do something. Mm-hmm. You don't know what the real reason was. Um, and it's only kind of when you think back on your whole career that you kind of see how little things uh, shape shape how you how you what what happens in your career. Uh, one one thing uh, I I've written a couple things about it that are on my website from different points in my career, and I think. I think at different career stages, people think about how things happen differently. I think as an undergraduate student, I just didn't think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it, things did happen. Looking back on I can see that people said things or things did yeah. happen, but it didn't really affect me. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I started to, to, that I started to really understand that, that 
Some people would see me as a person who was going to become a scientist, and some people would see me as somebody who probably cares more about kids than science and, you know, is not going to stick with it. Yeah. Uh, and it becomes a lot more obvious the farther you go up, go up in your career. Um, and, I, and I think that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, men or women or I think it's just as, as common for women to, to, st- to stop other women's careers as for men. Uh, you, know, you see it in, for example, uh, undergraduate student teaching uh, uh, evaluations. Uh, they've done study after study, and the same teacher, the same teaching style, the same grades on every other performance metric will give a lower grade for women or a lower for uh, people that are minorities. Wow. And if you're both, it's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's across the board, all ages, all genders, mm-hmm. um, it, that you have to just keep uh, reminding yourself that, that's, that that can't stop you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, so kind of leading off of that, um, have you experienced imposter syndrome kind of from that almost or just you know i i actually don't i know a lot of people do uh i i have always felt like i really never got anything that i didn't deserve three times over nice no that's great (laughs) and uh you know maybe i maybe i stopped myself maybe from even going to where i should should have been maybe you know my own uh you know, being unsure of myself, maybe I never put me myself in a situation where I would be an imposter. I don't know. But uh, I don't think anyone ever encouraged me to do anything I wasn't so qualified for. It was ridiculous. <laughs> so, no, I have never felt like an imposter. That's, that's good. I mean, I don't think enough people don't feel like an imposter, if that makes sense. Um, so one last question before we're out of time. Uh do you have a message that you might want to share with young girls or others who might be interested in STEM or physics? Yeah, I I think uh, that women think too much about, worry too much about what will happen when they go down one track or another. Will I be able to have children? Will I be able to have hobbies? Will I be able to live my life? And I, I think what I, I would say is just don't worry about it. You just, just do it. And I, I always kind of felt like uh, I could leave at any time. I mean, if, you, if you're walking the, the STEM pathway and you decide that the pathway you're on is not something you want to do, you can always do something else. I mean, you always have skills and options and, and you can try to do other things. But I think one of the 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 problems is if you if you limit yourself you know if you say I don't know if I want to do that because I'm afraid of what will happen if I do mm-hmm. and, and I think you should just go for it and see what happens I mean it's, it's not not going to be a problem yeah <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much for coming down to do this interview you just heard RPI astronomy professor Heidi Newberg talking about her research into the structure of the Milky Way galaxy Earlier, we heard about what's coming up at Albany Center Gallery. Now we'll turn to the spring season of programming coming up at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. Let's talk with the Sanctuary's programming coordinator, 
Sina Bazila Hickey. Yep, that same Sina who does this program. Hello. So, Sina, any big... Hmm? Hello. Hello, indeed. Any big themes for the spring season? We are looking at the spring season. It's uh, spaces to gather. The Eco Art Trail is... Um, finishing its programming this season and so a lot of our events have uh, are entwined in that eco art trail which embeds art culture ecology and history into an urban nature walk along the sixth ave in north central troy Um, we're working with the stockbridge muncie community and um, doing a lot of programming around uh, the living legacy of indigenous people through gardens live events multimedia murals sculptures and workshops and So we're finishing our programming this season, which began last uh, season, and it's finishing with Freedom Square, uh, Freedom Fest, and the um, the uh, Brent Michael Davids and the Albany Symphony Orchestra, and those are in June, and that will be also the beginning of the trail being available. So then we've stopped our programming. That's like. gaining uh, recording those materials that will be along the trail and then the trail will be available for people to experience you just mentioned workshops could you tell us more about them yes workshops we have uh quite a few different workshops uh happening so our season begins with the pruning and grafting and then we um and then we have fem sister labs meeting which we'll get into later it's has some workshops as a part of it There's a Be the Media workshop um, ahead of the film screening of Spaces of Exception. And that theme is creating a long-term media project. And we'll be hearing uh, that uh, workshop will be given by the co-director, Matt Peterson. Um, And that film uh, profiles the American Indian Reservation alongside Palestinian refugee camps. Another workshop that we have, so in May, we have actually a few different workshops. We have the Plant Swap, which is annually, which we have here on campus. And a week later, we have Mental Health and Activism, Native Education and Art Workshop. And that is with Rainer Posell, Jillian Hirsch, and uh, Winona um, of the Stockbridge Muncie community. Um, We have then later in that day, Defense, um, where we'll work with Margareta Howitt, um, to put fences and um, the it's it's the using fence posts and um, looking at territories and uh, ecology. Oh, and then I guess I can't forget the Indigi queer media artist Theo Jean Cuthand. Um, actually, Hudson Mohawk Magazine is collaborating and pushing this as a radio. It's participatory radio workshop. Um, and this will be a really f- fun, interactive way of creating um, a radio play. So those are our there's workshops. Yeah. so much I want to follow up on there because there's so much cool stuff. You mentioned a couple films. Are there other films coming up in the season too? Theogene Cuthand is beginning his presentation with a short film before the video, before the the radio workshop, where normally we do it the other way. So this is a nice little mix up of that. And how about concerts, you know, what's in store for music events beyond the Albany Symphony Orchestration Collaboration? 
Right. So that's great. That is the culmination of our season that's finishing everything. Um, and that is taking place on June 9th. And then uh, next month, well, no, sorry, we're not in March yet. But in April, on April 13th, we have Kanya Dolce y Kanya Brava. Um, and they are a performance coming from Veracruz, Mexico, um, using traditional instruments. In one of the photos, they have like a jawbone as a percussion instrument, a harp. That should be a lot of fun. So you, you dropped a term in there that I'm not familiar with. Fem meeting? Fem something? Yeah, the fem meeting. So uh, we have a lot of uh, people involved in the sanctuary. For instance, Kathy High the coordinator for Nature Lab, um, and many other people, including Ellie Irons, uh, who have been going to a lot of these FEM meetings. It's a lot of bio artists. I'm somewhat new from the last couple of years to understanding a lot of what um, what uh, bio art is. And it's been really, really exciting to see uh, women in the arts and sciences and technology approaching um, research from all these different angles. Um, the FEM meeting, Sister Labs, is um, driven by the desire to develop and promote a more direct collaboration between women working in the intersection of art, science, and technology. And the aim of the conference is to disseminate projects being undertaken by women worldwide and as a result to contribute to the development of art, science, research, methodologies, and the growth of cooperation strategies um, to increase knowledge and bring communities closer. So what that means is like the community around this has been um, the the community that's that I've seen around this. They um, work and support each other around the world. When we opened Nature Lab, we had a virtual uh, support system from Feb Meeting, and so there were people from I believe Vancouver and from Mexico City all joining, working in these other elements. So it's a really tight knit community, and that is on February. Oh, sorry, April fifth. My months, I'm not doing very well. Uh, April 5th, we have um, the speakers, the artist presentations. And then on April 6th, there's all these workshops. And the best way to get updated information is on our website. So you mentioned a lot of activities and it does sound like a lot of planning goes into it. Could you tell us who picks the activities and how do the various activities get balanced? In our general programming, that's a great question. So we welcome people to contribute their ideas and to join us for our program meetings. And um, it we every season, so many people bring incredible events and we wish that we could do all of them. And it then comes down to what is our timeline. We try to do two films, two music events, um, uh, various workshops and one or two book talks. So we have to kind of uh, look at what we have available. Um, and the big question is, why would somebody come to North Central Troy to see this, uh, to, to come to this event? And so it's really a collaborative effort. Um, and looking at like, you know, Lennox, if you know this filmmaker, um, then let's see if it fits and, and if it works in uh, at the sanctuary. Um, so if somebody's interested in pitching programming, we welcome you to get in touch and, uh, we have actually a form to fill out and let's see if that works. 
Thanks for that overview, Cena. Boy, that's a lot of stuff happening. And listeners, you can stop frantically scribbling dates and events. As Cena mentioned, all the details can be found on our website at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you enjoy the episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Lennox Saputo. And I'm Bria Barthel, delighted to be working with Lennox. And our engineer for this episode is the ever-incredible Sina Bazila Hickey. Sina, we appreciate you. And we appreciate all the other volunteers who made today's episode possible, including Mark Dunley for headlines and segment production, plus KP Holler, Sophia Kahilan, I sorry about if I butchered her name, and Sina for their segments. This is a team effort. And a big welcome to Lennox, the newest member of our team. I'm glad to be here. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer or a one-off donation by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our websites on your favorite podcast platform. We mentioned the people who make the uh, show possible, but thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.